every week, I try to lay out what we're going to do. I'm going to address one question. I'm going to be as brief as possible. We're going to talk about action steps, and then we're going to finish, wrap it up. All right, so that's how this is going to work, just like it has the past few weeks. All right, so this week, the question is, how do we change the perception that church is judgmental? That's a great question. I appreciated that question, getting that, because that is a common question uh, that I get. Maybe not phrase that exact same way, but I, I've, I understand the sentiment. And as I was doing some research, I figured out why this is why I've understood that and how I've heard that, because uh, the reason why this is important to understand and to explain is that there was a 2007 book that came out, and I know it's 10 years old, but bear with me, that was called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And it was based on research done among non-Christian 20-somethings, okay? So in other words, the people that we would like to see come to know Jesus, all right? All right, so non-Christian 20-somethings. One of their core findings was that that nearly 9 out of 10 young people view Christians and church as judgmental. 9 out of 10. 90%. 90%. Now, even though that was 10 years ago, I'm pretty sure the numbers haven't got much better. They might have got a little worse if they can and I don't believe we can simply shrug that off, you know, because I think that's what happens sometimes. I think you say, well, church isn't judgmental. I'm there all the time. I, I know it. Or if it is, I've kind of come to expect it, and I've got a hard, a hard callous skin, and I move on. But we shouldn't just dismiss that perception. We should instead do what we can to change it, because if you want to reach your unchurched friend, you want to reach your unchurched family, you want to reach your unchurched neighbors, which that's our goal here at Faith, and that should be your personal goal, in your life, to see people come to know Christ, then this has to change. That means I have to change, and you have to change, because there's no place in God's people for wrong judgment. And we're going to explain how we answer this question. How do we change that perception? I think to, to answer that question properly, you have to ask a couple more questions. And the first would be, should we judge? Because this is normally what I get, all right? So I think there's a slide for that, Jaden, so let's move to the next one. Should or how should we judge is really a best question, a better way to question, put that. Uh, actually, that's the second question, Jay. I don't have a slide for the first one. Should I judge? I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep my notes straight. Should we judge? That's right. Now, should we judge? I get a lot, a lot, a lot of discussion generated whenever I talk with other Christians about should we judge? And there's a lot of dispute. There's a lot of stuff out there, and we're going to walk through that. First, I want to clarify what the word judge means in the Greek New Testament. Again, we're going to the Bible. We're not going to to Webster's. We're going straight to the source of where we get our answers here this morning. And it comes straight from, in this case, the Greek and the word krino, which is found 114 times. And it means to select. It means to come to a conclusion, make a determination, usually related to a specific act or something someone does. In other words, determining between right and wrong. That's what that word, 114 times in the New Testament means, means to judge. Judging isn't evil in and of itself. I think that's the conception, right? That's what culture teaches us. It says, oh, you shouldn't judge, and then automatically we think, well, the judging's bad. We shouldn't judge. Judging in and of itself is not evil. You read throughout the Bible in Hebrews, it tells us that God is the judge of all, and that Acts, Christ is said to be the appointed, uh, appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So the common response to that is, well, of course God and Jesus can judge. They're perfect and we're not, right? They have the responsibility to judge. We don't. And that sounds good, and it sounds right, and it makes you sound holy and spiritual. Oh, yeah, I got this figured out. God's doing the judging. I'm not doing it. Until you read John 7, 24, 
where Jesus himself says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here we have a clear cut, <laughs> a clear cut command straight from Jesus himself of what to do. Now the context behind this verse and why he even said this, it wasn't just some random uh, you know, teaching he threw out there. It was within some kind of context. And that context was that Jesus had heal, healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. Talk about change. Holy smokes. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees of the day had a big, big, big problem with Jesus doing this. And it wasn't because of the healing. They had no problem with the healing. They had a problem that it happened on Sabbath. They had a problem that it happened on a day that the law and really the tradition at that point had said you shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You could only walk a certain distance. You could only do certain activities. There were certain things that you just did not do. And if you did those things, you were breaking the law. You were breaking the commandments of the day, and you were in sin. And so when Jesus healed a paralyzed man, someone who needed healing, and then forgave them of his sins, then they automatically said, oh, you shouldn't heal that man because it's, it's the Sabbath. It's the day off. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. And so Jesus corrects them. You know, they looked at his work as breaking the law, but they only saw the superficial, the appearances. They saw what they thought was the right thing. But Jesus says, do not look at just the surface of things. Don't just look at the basics of, of what you think you have figured out. Look beyond that and judge with right judgment. He corrects them, and in doing so, taught those around him that day to practice judging, but to do it rightly. There's a difference. There's a right way. And there's a wrong way to do it, which leads us into our second question this morning. How should we judge? All right, so let's answer that, because how we answer how we should judge is going to be something that begins to change the perception of our question, how or why is church judgmental? So how do we change that? By changing how we judge. I believe these six statements will help us get there. One, right judgment requires us to know the standard to which we are held to. We must make sure that we are relying on God's word and not our own opinion, which is why it's so important, and I talked about this week in and week out, to know your Bible, to know the word itself. If you don't know and apply the truth of Scripture, you have no right to judge someone else because you don't even know what, what the standard is that you're judging to, right? So you have to go back to the source. If you think that something's unclear and you, you're like, well, I'm not sure, you better go back and check before you call somebody on something, because that is the standard that we are held to. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't let your mind fall into the standards and practices of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible never requires a person to be sinless before they judge somebody. That's what I hear so often. Well, I want you to get yourself cleared up first before you come talk to me. And part of that's right. But the Bible never requires us to be completely sinless. We never really could anyway. Before we speak out against sin, the proper basis for calling something sinful isn't our personal perfection anyway, but it's simply whatever God calls sinful. All right? So that's the standard. It can't be, oh, I'm judging you based on how I feel this morning, or I'm judging you based on what my preferences are. It has to be based on what God's Word says. And if you go anything off that, stop. That's wrong judging, not right judging. All right? Two, right judgment requires both grace and truth. Now, this is pretty important. 
is very important because you have two sides of one coin here. It requires both grace and truth because if we simply proclaim the truth without grace, we're bringing condemnation. And we can't do that. Has someone ever told you something like this? Man, you are looking rough today. You ever had somebody say that? Or maybe something like that. Man, you're not looking so good today. Or man, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What are you wearing? There's something like that. There's some kind of statement like, hmm, that's not, that's, something's not going right with you this morning, right? Now, 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 when you look at them like you can't believe they would possibly say that, most of the time what they'll come back with, and I've had this happen, I've seen it happen, is, oh, well, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just being honest with you. You know, what's the big deal? If I'm, if I'm telling you the truth, shouldn't you want to hear it? Yeah. That's right, bless your heart. That's the, that's the way it usually covers up with that. That's right. Shouldn't know what you, I might have used that a couple of times with my wife. I don't know, but just that's, that's what we typically hear coming back with that. They think that, and we think, I've, been, I've done this, that by telling the truth, that is good enough. That that's good enough. That's the standard. Oh, I'm telling you the truth, so it doesn't matter what your feelings are. That's right. This is right. This is wrong. Your feelings don't factor into the equation, and we're going to move on because I'm right and you're not. <laughs> so the truth without grace. Now, when we do that, we're telling the truth, but we're not doing it thinking about their feelings at all. We're not thinking about the person at all. Truth without grace hurts instead of helps. And it normally, in most situations, unless God's already working on it, normally doesn't lead to any change anyway. If you have somebody tell you the truth without grace, more than likely or not, you're just going to say they're mean and I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore and you can go away because I don't want to listen to your mess. All right? That's normally what's going to happen. It doesn't bring true change. Now, we'll either avoid that person the next time we see them, right? Or we'll change our behavior only when they're around, right? You ever had your friends do that? You go around and they're like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll clean my language up because you're around. Or, oh, I'll, I'll dress a little different since, you know, you're coming around, whatever the case is. I'll do these things because they're afraid of being called out, right? And not that there's anything wrong with calling people out. We'll get to that in a little bit. But sometimes we, we seek to change behavior through truth only and not grace too. And that can be damaging. Now, the opposite is exactly true as well. Because grace without truth is equally destructive, Right? You can't just be all grace, you know, because that doesn't help anybody either. Grace without truth says everything is okay, right? It says, oh, we're good. If you hurt my feelings, it's no big deal, right? You can say all you want. You can be as truthful as you want, and I'll be fine. It'll be good. I forgive you. We'll move on. Let's just keep this friendship going. Let's just keep this relationship good, and it'll be all right. I don't, we don't need to make a big deal about any of that. And we forgive, 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 and never speak the truth that we're hurt, that something's going on, that something they're doing is not right, and we need to address it. Grace without truth is spineless. It is. It's emotional feel-goodism, essentially. That, oh, I just want you to, f- to make sure that we're, we're good. It doesn't matter if what you're doing is wrong or what I'm doing is wrong. It matters that we all feel good about it. Grace without truth allows us to continue in behaviors that are abusive and destructive to ourselves and to those around us. Now, judging rightly requires that we have both grace and truth, and it starts with a long, long look in the mirror. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and I only have one of the verses on the slide, but I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, this is Jesus speaking again. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Everybody knows that one. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's no log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think I have verse 5. Yep. Just about everyone I know knows verse 1 of Matthew 7. They probably can't tell you, oh, it's Matthew 7, 1, but they know, judge not. What they don't know is the rest of it. What they don't know is the fact that Jesus wasn't speaking against judgment. He was speaking about hypocritical judgment because whenever we could lodge a complaint with somebody and we say, oh, you're doing something wrong, you're doing something I don't like, without first looking at ourselves, we're wrong. And we're all guilty of it because we all do it. That's why Jesus told the Sadducees and Pharisees that day, he said, you hypocrite, look at yourself first. Before we can even begin to point out someone else's flaw, we must look at ourselves. And I love the line, it's a quote from someone, I can't remember who, but it says, we can't enforce rules on others, we aren't willing to follow ourselves. That's the bottom line. I mean, there's so many times where I've heard people try to put something on somebody, they can't even do their own self. Right judgment is the third statement. It requires humility and not arrogant superiority. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of God's standard. And that we're all in need of a Savior and the right to follow Him. We are in constant need of His love and His forgiveness. We got to remember that before we do anything else. If you ever have a complaint against someone, you ever going to speak the truth to love in someone, you first have to look at yourself and say, I do not have it together. I don't got it together. I know that. So let me first take a long look in the mirror to make sure I'm not coming at them like I've got it together and they don't. Because that's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing to get so spooled up in your rightness, in my rightness, that I'll look at somebody else and say, I can't believe you would do that. Well, I should be careful what I say because I can't believe what I do sometimes too, right? Right judgment, fourth one, Requires us to look beyond the surface. There we go. Look beyond the surface. All throughout the New Testament, superficial judging is condemned. To judge someone strictly on the basis of race, their cultural background, unsubstantiated rumor, their appearance, financial standing, all those things is wrong. And there's so many scriptural references, I can't give them to you all. But all those things are absolutely wrong judgment. In his sermon, at Caesarea, Peter declared that God is no respecter of persons, meaning that God values our hearts over our appearance or our status, and so should we. There's no basis for me to judge anybody who walks in here with a different set of clothes on, who has less money than I do, or more money than I do, or votes differently than I do, or anything else based on status, religion, color, creed, because God doesn't either. He accepts us all, and so should we. One of the reasons I dress the way I do on Sundays, which is actually part of a, a prompt from, uh, from one of uh, someone that, that started coming here, and I took it to heart, and so I changed what I was doing. One of the ways I dress, because I came from the South, and you know, in the South, you dress up. I come in uh, Sunday morning in the South, full suit, tie, slick shoes, sometimes alligator skin. No, I'm just joking. That's my friend. I don't do that. And so you get all dressed up. You get the best of the best on. It better be pressed. You better be able to slice bread with the crease in your pants, it better be on point. If it's not, you better go back to the house and change it because everybody else that morning is going to be that way, right? 
You're going to be the one out, out in the cold looking like an odd duck. And when I got here, I dressed down a little bit, but it wasn't quite that way. But then somebody pointed that out to me, and I took it to heart. I think that was the right move, and I appreciate that, that question. So th- I changed how I dress because I want to put people at ease when they step in here. I want someone who comes in off a farm working that morning is in a coveralls or overalls and steps in the door to feel just as at ease as somebody who came from the bank yesterday or whatever the case is. They're all accepted no matter what. None of us are perfect, and it shouldn't matter what you're wearing anyway. I do always quote the please, please, please put some clothes on before you show up. Now, what they are, I don't want to, yeah, we can just discuss that, but put some clothes on. But I don't want anybody to think they can't come in here wearing something different, like they don't belong. It's one of the first questions I normally get. If somebody calls and says, oh, what's, I'd like to come to your church. First of all, what time does it start? Where is it at? What should I wear is the third question. Normally. Most of the time, what should I wear is that third question. And why does it ask that? You ever wonder what, why that is? Because that question reinforces a belief that if I don't wear something that fits in with everybody else, then they're going to judge me. All right? They're going to look at me like I'm not as good as somebody else. Or I'm not, I don't fit in. And we do it all the time. If you were to go any other place, if you go to a fancy restaurant and sit down and eat, you would dress differently than you were going to a barbecue joint on a weekend for lunch, right? I mean, you would do it differently. We all do it in every social interaction. And so it's very important when somebody calls that I try to make sure that if they're talking to me, I make them feel as comfortable as possible because it's not about what you wear. Whenever they ask that, it's not only indicating that that people are always looking for, for ways to fit in, but it's also a good indicator of the belief you had to clean yourself up before you come to church. I don't want anybody to feel that way either. Jesus took me and every single one of us at our worst. And day by day, he transforms us little by little. It's not perfect. We need a, we need a daily washing, a daily cleaning, a daily molding to get a little more like him, like I was talking about earlier. All of us need it, but it starts at the bottom, Right? And so I don't feel like anybody has to come in here and put on their Sunday best and pretend to be something they're not because that's not what we're about, because that's not what God is about, going back to the standard that he has set. Neither the clothes nor cleaning yourself up before you come to church has a place in this place. I can't talk about other churches, but I know this one. It doesn't have a place here because it doesn't have a place in the Bible. Next one, right judgment doesn't sweat the small stuff. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Romans 14, 2 and 4. One person believes he may eat anything, while the wheat person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Paul makes it clear here, again, it's not a, not a, not a condemnation to say, oh, we're not supposed to judge anything Paul makes it clear in this verse that it is wrongful to judge someone for not following our man-made rules. All right? It goes back to the tradition. That's why he called the Pharisees out for the healing on the Sabbath, because it was something they, they had taken to the extreme and forgot the intent of the, of the uh, command from the beginning of the word. We should not judge someone based on something we've made up. Now, key question you can ask yourself, because it happens to me, I have to go through a little checklist. Well, should I call somebody on this or not? Does the Bible clearly address it? Does it lay it out flat? Is there a specific place I can point to, and, and typically more than just one place I can point to that says this is wrong before I start talking to someone about what they have going on? Because if it's not there, and it's something I've just grown up in, or something I've just my family's passed down to me, or something that the culture around us says is not acceptable, but it's not in here, then I need to stop, because that's not right. 
That's not right judgment. That's wrong judgment. Yet again, it's about what's here, not about what's around us, not about what we're used to, not about what always has been. It's about what the Bible itself says. And if there's something small, forget it. It's not that big of a deal. What's frustrating about this is we focus so much on the tiny things that we forget the mission. If you're ever in combat, in real-life combat, now, I don't know if you have been or not, but if you have been, you can imagine this. You've seen war movies enough, you've probably figured it out. If you're in real-life combat and you're actually taking bullets, right, the bullets might try to stop you, right, but the bullets are there for someone else to accomplish their mission, you're going to fire back to accomplish your mission. The bullets aren't the point. The mission is the point. We focus so much, and if you're a good combat operative, if you're good at what you do, if you're good at shooting people and, and accomplishing the mission, you don't let the bullets flying around you distract you. You don't let your buddy in beside you who's locked up, maybe can't fire, distract you. You don't worry about the fact there's explosions going off to the right or the left, distract you. You don't worry about the itch in your pants, the sand that's crawled up the wrong leg and has gotten to their weird and crazy places to distract you from what you should be doing. You focus that the mission is the most important thing and nothing else matters. Because if you forget that, you've lost. You've lost the battle, and you've lost the war. Now, God isn't going to lose, but you can lose a few battles along the way getting to where he wants you to be if you're not careful and stumble into this trap. Sweating the small stuff distracts us from the mission. The mission is to see this place transformed, to see this community, one person at a time, transformed by the gospel of Christ, by seeing them renewed by his gospel, by seeing them made disciples by his power. Nothing else matters. Nothing else. If I have to stand up here in my pajamas and preach, I don't care. If I have to take my shoes off and run around out in the snow to get somebody to come to Jesus, that's what I'm going to do because that's the mission. Nothing else is important. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to be talking about, wow, I wish I would have done that differently. I wish I would have dressed differently. I wish I would have said that differently. I'm going to be saying, did I do everything I possibly could to get somebody to come to know Christ? Bottom line, flat out. When I stand before Jesus and kneel before him and take my crown off and, and hopefully, prayerfully hear, well done, it's going to be because I did everything I could to focus on the main thing. That's it. Don't lose sight of that. Don't sweat the small stuff. Wrongful judging occurs when we put our wants and our preferences above the commands of Christ. Right judgment, last one, requires reconciliation. I love this because if, if nothing else, I pray that this place, that this body, not this building, this body becomes a house of reconciliation. That we're doing church the way the Bible says to do church, that it's not about coming on a Sunday and having a good time. It's about me walking alongside you and you walking alongside me whenever we're messing up and we got stuff going on in our lives and we are drawing each other to be reconciled, to be in a right relationship with Jesus. That's what right judging requires. It's not our place to bring condemnation. It's our place to tell the truth in love. Right judgment doesn't call out a problem and leave somebody to clean up the mess. All right? That's truth without grace, right? It doesn't say, oh, well, you need, to get, you need to get good with God. You've got a lot of messed up stuff in your life. See you later. Right? That's not it. It shouldn't be. I've seen that. It shouldn't be. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus did. 
part of the process of reconciliation is calling someone out when it's appropriate to, but it's also acknowledging that I messed up too, and let's walk along the road together to get a little bit closer to Jesus. That's reconciliation, day by day, step by step. Walking alongside someone to get where God is calling them to. No Bible-believing Christian should ever write off an unbeliever is irredeemable. That is not our place. Who knows what God has in store for those around us. If someone's not dead yet, that means God's got a plan for them, and it's up to them to make a decision to accept or follow or not, but it's not my place to say, well, you're going to hell, because I don't know. You might be on the way right now. Who knows what will happen five minutes from now, five years from now, 50 years from now. It's not my place to condemn, and it's not my place to look down on, some, on an unbeliever as something is less than myself. If I start to do that, if we start to do that, we're doing it wrong. Unbelievers need to know Christ and be reconciled to him, and believers need to grow in Christ and be reconciled to each other. Part of the problem with our churches as being judgmental, and I'm just just referring to this one, but any church, is that we judge each other, don't we? Wrongfully, not right judging. We wrongfully judge each other. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've been in church a long time, right? I'm 30, however, however old I am, I've, since, since birth. I've been in church and I've seen wrong judging with each other in the body of Christ. There's no place for that. Somebody's going to see it. If you don't wrongfully judge someone outside the church and they come in on a Sunday or they come, come do something on a work party with us or they come hang out and they serve alongside of us doing a dinner or whatever, I don't care what it is, they see that and they see us treating each other and wrongfully judging each other, what are they going to do? They're going to think, well, they might be treating me good now, but as soon as I keep coming back, they're probably going to treat me the same way they're treating each other. Right? I mean, I would. That's what I would think. I think, I don't want to be a part of that. That's messy. That's ugh. That's, that's not what I want anything to do with anything. And that's not what Jesus called the church to be. He said, you will know by the love that they have for one another, not the judgment they have for one another. To be able to get unbelievers to know Christ and to reconcile ourselves to Christ and to each other, we have to proclaim the truth, but do it with love, humility, and kindness. Galatians 6, 1 says this, Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, and that doesn't mean better than. I think some people read that and say, you who are better than them. That's not what that means. You who are spiritual means you who are in the spirit. means you're going to check yourself and need to, need to make sure you got yourself straight before you go talk to them should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We've all done things that we shouldn't have. And if anybody here says, I haven't, <laughs> then you probably just lied to me. Right? We've all done things, and we're probably going to do them again. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and then when we mess up, if anyone's caught in transgression, if anyone's got something going on they shouldn't have, Restore them gently and in love. Working as the body of Christ is meant to work. If you take these six, I think there were six. <laughs> I didn't even count. If you take these, these judgment statements, these right judgment statements, you can begin, not, not that it will solve everything, but you can begin to change the perception of this church and of yourself and of churches in general one person at a time. Now, I can't go out and change the, country, the country's perception of Christianity. I can't make that survey, see, 9 out of 10 people across America says that it's not judgmental anymore. But I can work on the people I know, right? 
I can work on the relationships that I have in this church. I can work on the relationships of my friends, family, and neighbors. And I can do my part to exercise right judgment and grace, love, and truth one, late, one day at a time. That slow and steady change is what will change the bigger picture later on. But I'm responsible for what I have right here, right now, not anything else. And so are you. By doing right judgment, we'll start to change that perception. So our action statement this week is get to know if you, I'm sure you already know them, and they may know you better. But uh, action statement, Jay, I think you got a slide for it. Should be near the end anyway, I hope. There we go. Earn the right to speak the truth in love. You have to earn the right. It doesn't, it, you don't start by speaking the truth in love. Not with your friends, family, or neighbors. Not, not typically. You have to earn the right first. You have to get to know them. You have to be in a relationship with them that doesn't start out with, man, you are really messed up today. <laughs> right? That's not how it should start out. You have to get to really know them. You don't point out their flaws initially, but listen to their story. Everybody's got a story. Half the time, the things that we judge people on, we've done ourselves. But we don't know what they've done until we listen to it. Listen to their story and tell them yours. That's where change starts to really happen. That's where it really starts to happen because you can tell, as they tell you your story and it sounds bad and, and, and it could be some horrible stuff, but as they lay it out to you and you can start to relate to them, you can say, man, let me tell you that same a similar story because I've been through a lot of stuff too and let me tell you what God has done for me to get to me, get where I am today. That's where we can start to see the change happen. That's where judgment can start to come in. Right judging can start to come in to pour into their lives to break down the barriers between them and Christ a little bit at a time. And as I see you and me practicing right judgment, the doors will be open for us to share with others and to be shared with them that they know they won't be wrongfully judged when they come here because we are the church, right? And if we can get them to know us and get them to know we won't wrongfully judge, we can begin to work on that process of come, come with me to, to where my family's at, where my other family's at. They're like me, or at least they try to be. We're not perfect, but we try to be. We try to practice right judgment and not wrong judgment. And that will start to change the perception.